Thank you so much, choir. I'm a little bit loud, I think. All right, our kids are uh, being dismissed, first through fifth grade that way. Kind of a new habit for us. Appreciate you being here. Um, so some movement, got some kids leaving, some choir coming down. Uh, so we, I still see some folks standing in the back, and some have arrangements already. It's kind of like being at a concert. I've got an arrangement. I've got a connection up front. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, we have lots, and I think this is probably a lot of the choir here. And they will be back. They're going to be back at the end of the service. Uh, we're going to get them a big old bus, and they're going to hit the road with that, with that set right there that they just sang. We're going to move it that way just a touch and all the way up, if you don't mind. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Praise the Lord. Uh, if my nose is not clean, somebody flag me down. You on video, you'll know it. So text somebody say, preacher needs to clean his nose because... Had a little bit of case of the mucus flowing this morning. This is a good song. I like it. That's not the way you really introduce a message, I don't think. But <laughs> it's just reality, right? I got to be up here in front of you. You get to sit there, and if, if something's wrong with you, nobody's going to know except your spouse or your kids. So, how many? I thought of this a while ago. How many do not have a handout? I, I know some of these seats back here would not. Raise your hand if you do not have a handout this morning. Uh, we want to try to, so if anybody is in an area and you're like, I don't need one, you know, I'm not a note taker, or in our family we've got two or three of those. Some folks do like to take notes as we follow along. Uh, we want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to have uh, that if they would like, if you would join us there. Join me if you would, Mark chapter 14 this morning. Uh, as you look at your handout, in a moment we'll get to that. Uh, I will point your attention to the title. A review. This is a review, especially if you've been with us in the last year or so, or even part of that year. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, this is going to be a review Sunday. Uh, I don't feel bad about it because the Lord calls us throughout the Word to be reviewing those things. Uh, but for some, it'll not be a review. You say, what's it a review of? We spent about three years, I think, give or take, going through the book of Matthew, and we finished it last September. We finished the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be reviewing some things in chapters 26, 27, 28. And then we've now gone into the book of Acts. So normally our normal pattern is we're working our way through a book of the Bible. We started Acts uh, at, in January. Normally we do a set of verses. We focus just there. That's not what we're doing today. We're going to be using kind of a lot of verses, of different passages. So this is less of a textual message and more of a topical because today is Easter. So we're going to take a break from our normal teaching and preaching out of the book of Acts this morning, but we're going to overlap a little bit from Acts chapter 1 and 2. So I was sitting there a while ago, and I was thinking as they were singing about being moved from darkness to light. If you have, if you are in that group of people, and there are many in the room right now, you, by God's grace, have been moved into the spiritual light. God's light has shined in your heart. You understand the gospel. This is a day for you to celebrate that and to let that light shine through you. But just understand this morning, one of the reasons I'm going to review, and this is serious. You say, Jeff, is it really serious? Was what they just sang a bunch of wishful thinking? Is it just kind of a positive message? Christians get together once a year. How do we know this is not just that? Well, we've got to back it up with something. We can get up and sing anything. We can say anything. But it's got to be based on something. And so today, we want to base it on the Word of God. Does it matter? Absolutely. This life has danger around it all the time. There are some in the room, I believe most, no doubt, are living in the light. But you need to understand, 
There's quite a few folks that are in this room this morning. They're living in darkness. They're right now in spiritual darkness. And the only way for that to change is by to look at the light of the Word of God and hope and pray that God will take that light and spring life within them so that they will see the light and respond. They're in here. Some of them know that they're living in darkness. They know they're not saved. There's some that are in the room right now. There are others who think they are living in the light, but it has never really happened. And so this morning, we want to take a fresh look, a fresh look. You say, Jeff, it's a review. I kind of know a lot of this. But remember, it's a time to celebrate it and know that someone else has not seen this necessarily before. How serious is it? One of our deacons is right now, my understanding, even right now, having, I think, his third surgery in the last 48 hours. We don't know what's going to happen. But I know this. Well, he gave a great testimony last Saturday, last Saturday to the men. He gave a great testimony this past Wednesday at his house. And uh, whatever the Lord's will is there, whether he stays with us or the Lord takes him, uh, the truth that we've just sang about is the anchor of his soul, and it makes all the difference. That, that changes everything. So pray even now within yourself, Lord, open my heart to receive this truth. I want us to notice three things this morning about a review of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Number one, and here's what I want you to do. Join me if you would. We just celebrated Good Friday. Friday, there's a reason we call it Good Friday. That's when Jesus was dying on the cross. But here's where we're going to start. Go back in your mind right now. You use your imagination. We're going back to the Thursday. Let's go back maybe, say, three to four hours in your mind before that Friday began at midnight. So that Friday's going to begin at midnight. He'll be arrested. Let's go back before that on Thursday evening. Three to four hours in advance of that. Notice number one this morning. What was happening within Jesus? I want us to think about that. So as we go back to that late Thursday night, the Lord and his disciples are about to eat the last Passover meal. It's now we call it the Last Supper. Uh, it's going to transition that as far as Christians are concerned. The Jews still celebrate the Passover. Christians do not. It has been transformed into now the Lord's Supper this time period. It was around this time of the year. We don't know the exact date in that year. But he's about to have that meal with his disciples. So here's what I want you to go with me right now. What was going on in the mind and the heart and the soul? What's going on internally within this man called Jesus of Nazareth? What's going on inside of him? I'll not turn there, but I challenge you, read John chapter 13. The first four verses will tell us an insight into what's going on in his mind. He knows. So John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that Jesus knows that his hour has come. He's been talking about this hour. It's not like one hour. It's this time period of his suffering, his death. He knows it has now arrived. He is just, like I said, three to four hours from being arrested and put on trial. So now that he knows this in that upper room about to partake of the Passover meal, the Bible also says and gives inclination, he knows fully who he is. He knows who he is. And this is a mystery. The eternal Son of God, can I say it? The eternal God, the Son, became a human being. And all that that entails, everything about being human except becoming a sinner, he became a human being, a, an embryo, a baby. He was born. And he took on all that that entails. So he laid aside his omniscience. And so one of the Gospels talks about how as he grew up as a from a baby to an, in, I mean, just again, an embryo to an unborn, to a newborn, to an infant, to just a little toddler, to his adolescence. 
Somewhere in that time period, the Bible talks about how he grew in wisdom and knowledge and stature. Think of that. God the Son is growing in wisdom and knowledge. I don't know when the day came that this little child realized who he was. But we know that by the age of 12, he's in the temple saying that I must be about my father's business. So we know by age 12, and that is a mystery. And some of you be like, I think you're teaching heresy. In the womb, he knew. I don't believe that. He laid that aside. He was the eternal son of God. But in John 13, he knows fully who he is. He knows his hour has come. It is now that time. He's been predicting. It is now the time. And he knows every detail of what is coming his way. He knows he's about to go back to the Father from where he has been for eternity. So he knows that relationship. And because he knows every detail, there's something that's going on within him. Look at Mark 14, verse 32. So I'm going to skip the Last Supper. He washes the disciples' feet. Judas exits to go betray him. While this scene is happening, Judas is getting the armies that are going to come and arrest the Lord just moments, about an hour after what we're about to read. But the Lord and his 11 disciples left the upper room, went through the city of Jerusalem. They go down the mountain, up here's the temple area in Jerusalem. They go down the mountain, and they're going to head up the Mount of Olives. And somewhere in this region, there's this garden called Gethsemane of olive trees. And verse 32 takes place. What's going on within Christ? And they went to a place called Gethsemane. He and the eleven. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So the eleven, picture the scene. It's dark, probably around eleven o'clock. You guys sit here. I'm going to go pray. But verse 33 adds, and he took with him Peter and James and John. You guys sit here. Peter, James, John. Y'all three come with me. And he took with him Peter and James and John. And notice what the Bible says. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled they would have never seen Peter and James and John are getting an inside look they have never seen Jesus like this he is now greatly distressed and troubled and he said to them the three my soul is very sorrowful even to death y'all sit here Peter James John come with me and they go with him and he tells them, I'm about to die I'm about to die my soul is exceedingly sorrowful He is greatly distressed. He is troubled. You're like, what's going on? What's the problem? He says, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, about as far as you can throw a rock, he goes a little further. And he fell. He fell. He's a man. He fell. He's the God man. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He knows it's time. He knows Judas. They're about to come down the hill and come get it. They're lighting their torches. He knows every detail. And he's having this last prayer session. God, is there any other way? Verse 35. Verse 36. And he said, so he's praying that this hour might pass. And he said, Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I don't want to drink it. I don't want to do this. Remove this cup from me. You can do anything. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. That's how you pray. That's how you pray. You surrender to the will of God. It's an Oreo. You surrender to the will of God. You make your request, and you surrender to the will of God again. This is how you pray. Is this prayer answered? No. I think this is the only prayer of Jesus that is not answered. But he prays, 
God, you can do anything. All things are possible. I don't want to do. Will you please remove this bitter cup? I don't want to drink it. And he does that three times. And finally, he wakes his disciples up at midnight. And he says, here they are. They come. And Judas comes up and kisses him. If you're taking notes, I want you to begin. You'll see it up in the moment. Why is he so distressed? Why is he under such agony? There are two things. And if you caught it, one was particularly heavy throughout the singing this morning. I want everybody to understand this. There's two main things that separate the death of Jesus from everybody else. Okay? Number one, his death was substitutionary. It was all in the singing. Listen to 1 Peter. You'll not see it on the screen. Listen to the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once. Let that sink in. For Christ also suffered once. For sins. Wait. Why is he suffering? For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Substitutionary. We're the unrighteous. We should be suffering for sin. Christ comes, moves us out of the way, and he tells the Father, I'm coming as the substitutionary sacrifice. I'm going to take their suffering for sin. So his death is substitutionary, but secondly, write it down, his death is sin-bearing. His death is sin-bearing. You'll see the full note in a moment, but look on the screen, 2 Corinthians. Notice with me, 2 Corinthians, I think that'll be up there. Chapter 5, look at verse number 21. We got that, look at the screen, notice. For our sake, so here's that sin-bearing aspect. For our sake, he, God, made him to be sin To be sin. I don't even understand that. Who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it's the substitutionary, the righteous for the unrighteous. Move, I'm taking your place. But it's more than that. It is also he, God, the Father, made Jesus to become not a sin, a sinner, some sin. He took on all sin. It is this. You say, what's happening in the garden? It is this sin-bearing aspect that is causing him so much anguish and agony. This is what's weighting him down. If you would write this note, Christ knew what's going on, what's happening within him. He knew that he must become sin. And here's the thing. He despises sin more than you despise anything in your life. He despises sin. And yet, He knows why he must become sin. He despises sin, yet he must become sin so that God the Father can pour out his wrath on him as sin. He knows this is what's about to happen. We have looked at this. This is a review for many of us. But guys, it hit me again this week, maybe in a fresh way. I'm talking about two different things. It hit me like, Jeff, wake up. These are two things, two things that cause agony to the Lord. Number one, just for him to become sin. He hates sin. He despises it. goes against everything. That would be torture in and of itself. But it's why he became sin. So that God the Father would pour out his wrath on him as sin. Y'all help me this morning. What's the theological word for how powerful Jesus is? Jesus is what? Omnipotent. Jesus is omnipotent. What's the theological word for how powerful God the Father is? 
omnipotent. So what we have is when he's on the cross, he becomes sin. He's omnipotent. He can do anything. And yet, omnipotent God the Father is going to pour out his wrath. So we have omnipotent God pouring out wrath on omnipotent Christ. So the question becomes, how much wrath does God have to pour out on him? And the thought this morning is Jesus does not just become some sin. He became every sinful thought, every sinful word. Every sin- Do you know how many sinful thoughts are represented by this room? Sinful, I mean sinful feelings and sinful desires and sinful fantasies and sinful wishes and hopes. And again, emotions, so many. And that's just our thoughts. No one else sees that. He took all of that, all every sinful thought, every sinful word. Do you know how many sinful words have been just this little moment in time, this little dot on our planet, this little group? Every sinful action, every sinful omission, and from all people who've ever lived, ever will live, it is all put on Christ. I've tried to share this, and I don't think I've ever been able to share even what the Lord has shown me, and what He's shown me is still far short of reality. By God's evaluation, not ours, you're going to disagree with what I, what I say. We don't like what the Bible says. But by God's evaluation, He makes the rules and He sees things as they really are. The cup of wrath, the cup of God's wrath for one person is so bitter and so full and so powerful that for one person, for you to pay and to drink the cup of God's wrath just for your individual sins requires a combination of two things. It requires hell. Hell. Flames. Torment. Hell. Loneliness. Darkness. Death. It requires hell. And here's the combination. For eternity. Get it. Hell. Hell, you in hell for eternity. No, go, eternity, eternity in hell. That's one person. Jesus is paying for a whole world's sin, all of humanity. And God's not going to shortchange. If that's what it costs for me, imagine what it would be to add you and you and you and you and those watching and all the people who've ever lived all put on Christ. That's why he's distressed and troubled and in anguish. And about to die in the garden. He knows this is coming. And he dreads it. If there's any other way. Join me in Acts chapter 2. Because I want to say one other thing. In relation. To what is going on within Christ. So we know that there is. This tremendous dread and sorrow. About what is about to happen. He's not. About to die in the garden. Because he's afraid of crucifixion. Or the beating that's coming. It's this sin-bearing aspect. And yet there's this whole other thing, and we can't spend, we could like a whole sermon on this a few weeks ago. Acts chapter 2, and verse number 22. Let's read there down to verse 31. We spent like a whole message on this. I love this section. I probably forced this back in, but I got to give it to you. I want to know what was going on in Christ. Yes, there's that, what we just talked about that, that was represented in the garden and the upper room, and he knows all this knowledge. But this is now 50 days after Jesus has died on the cross. This is 50 days after that. Obviously, he's resurrected. Peter is preaching to thousands of Jews in another feast in Jerusalem. Look at verse 22. Thousands of Jews, Peter says. Men of Israel, men of Israel, 
Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, that's a real man from a real place. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Men of Israel, you know that this man, Jesus, has done mighty works and miracles. God did them through this, through him. You know this to be a fact. He did it in and among you. There was no trickery. You knew this. And yet, verse 23, this Jesus, the one that you knew was a man of God who did all the miracles and healings, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite, and for, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Here's Peter's message. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Hey, Israel, men of Israel, you killed him. The man attested to you by God. Yes, you use Roman soldiers to do your dirty work, and they are lawless men, but you are the ones mostly responsible. But, verse 24, God raised him up, he tells these Jews. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Because, why did God raise him up? Because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He couldn't be held by death. Peter's preaching. He's alive. He's resurrected. But yes, he really died, but death couldn't possibly hold him. Why not? One of the reasons is in verse 25. He's preaching to this audience, and they would kind of know. They would know some about their Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Bible of their day. Look at verse 25. Peter tells these, this crowd of Jews, thousands of them, he says, For David says concerning him. Those of you that were with us, you remember? We're here. We're looking back 2,000 years. Go with me. We're 50 days after the death of Christ. But Peter is referring to something that was written in Psalm 16. Four verses in Psalm 16. And he's saying how, hey, my audience here, God raised Jesus from the dead. And it had to happen that way because of what David wrote a thousand years earlier in Psalm 16. David was not writing about himself when he wrote this. He was writing about the Christ. Look at verse 25. For David says, David says concerning him. And here's, you see, I want to snapshot what's going on within Christ. This is the mind of Christ. I saw the Lord Always before me. As Jesus is going through life, he constantly sees and recognizes the presence of God. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, the place of protection. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. That's how Christ lived his life. Aware constantly of the presence of God, the Father at his right hand. That's faith. A faithful person is one who sees things that everybody else doesn't. This is Jesus saw the Lord. Verse 26, what effect? Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell. The idea of my flesh will rest in hope. I want you to pit these two things side by side, not against each other. Just put them side by side. Watch. All the dread and the agony and the distress and the sorrow of he knows what's coming. And yet at the same time, he has in his heart and his mind gladness and rejoicing and great hope. Why? Because of the promise. Verse 27. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. This is what Christ knows. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One, your Holy One, see corruption. What he's saying is, I know you're going to let my soul go to Hades and you're going to let my body really die. But my body will not be corrupted. And my soul will not be left in Hades. You 
have made known to me the paths of life and catch the future here. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. You see that? In John 13, the Bible says Jesus knew he was going back to the Father. Here we see it in Psalm 16 as a prophecy. And now Peter is looking back to 50 days earlier and saying, this is what was going on in the heart of Christ. Verse 29. Peter tells his Jewish audience after reading and quoting Psalm 16. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. No offense, we love David. He died a thousand years ago. He's been dead a thousand years ago. His body has decomposed. He never resurrected. But Verse 30, being therefore a prophet, David was a prophet, a true prophet, and knowing that God had sworn, God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Write this down. Here's a snapshot. What's going on in the heart and the mind of Christ? Write it down. Yes, he shuddered at the thought of becoming sin. And receiving God's wrath. But he faced the actual moment of death itself. I mean, that moment of death, the Lord faced that with absolute full confidence and assurance that God the Father had made promises and he will keep the promises. He will not leave my soul in Hades, and nor will he leave my body in the grave long enough to start decomposing. He faced death, that moment of death, unafraid, totally And that's what I want to do when I die. I want to face that moment of death totally confident, relying on the promises of God. This is what Christ did. He lived with a continuous awareness of the Father's presence. You say, what is this Hades? In their day, Hades in the Old Testament, I'm not going to go into all of it, watch. In the Old Testament, Hades was for all people this idea of not just the grave, a physical grave, but it's what's beyond the grave. Okay, the body will go into the grave, but where's like the person go? Where's the real person? They go to Hades. Everybody would go to Hades. You say, what about believers? Well, everything in the Scripture appears that Hades had two aspects to it. There was an aspect called hell that was within Hades, but there was another aspect of Hades called Abraham's bosom or paradise. And so as Christ knows, I, he, on the cross, Friday afternoon, when he's about to die, he, this is what he's thinking. My body is going to be put into a grave, and I'm about to split. I'm a human individual, and I'm about to come apart. My body will be left here. The real me is going to Hades, but I will not stay there. Y'all were singing the next to the last song, and I've never had this thought before. It just kind of hit me. What was that entrance to Abraham's bosom like? A lot of people kept coming, believers. What was it like when Jesus showed up? Could you imagine the roar? (laughs) What are you doing here? Oh, and then imagine two to three days later, as he says, guys, I got to go. I'll see you real soon. I'll see you on the other side. I got to go back and reunite with my body. And he reunited with his body. And he made appearances on earth for some 40 days. And now today, all those people that were in Abraham's, par- Abraham's bosom, paradise, they, now, that, they had to go there in the Old Testament because Christ had not yet paid for sin. But now, when we die, we don't go to paradise. 
in Hades. We don't go to Abraham's bosom. We go straight to be with the Lord because of what Christ has done. He led all those captives out of captivity. Number two. What happened to Jesus? So what's going on within him? He knows who he is. He knows every detail of what's coming. He's horrified at the thought of becoming sin and receiving judgment from God. And yet, he has these great promises and full assurance that God will keep his word. But now we need to spend some time this morning. What is all these songs based on? Is it based on something? I want us to notice five things that happen. And this will be the main body. This will be the part where we spend the longest this morning. Five things that happened to Jesus. Number one, after he was arrested. And again, I, don't, I, I thought about giving you like a, like a little two pages or front back, all that. Uh, you just, like a full sheet, folded. Like, no, we're just going to hit some highlights. Okay, so you're just gonna, some of them are just going to write the thing and just have to listen. First of all, notice that Jesus was put on trial. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was put on trial. His trial was in two phases. There was a Jewish phase and there was a Roman phase. First, let's talk about the Jewish phase. There were three aspects of that, but I'm going to focus on the middle one. His Jewish trial was completely illegal. Do you remember why? There was like a dozen aspects where they broke the laws of the land to try Christ. I'm going to point out a few. Number one, it was illegal because it was at nighttime. They're not allowed to have trials at night. That's illegal. breaks the law. Number two, he had no legal representation. He had no lawyer. That's illegal. Can't try it. Number three, they end up announcing their verdict before a whole day goes by if it's going to be guilty. Now, if you acquit and you say they're innocent, you can do that anytime. But if you're going to announce a guilty verdict, a whole day has to go by to allow time for mercy and grace to come into the heart. They don't do that. But particularly, this is why this was a corrupt, crooked, wicked trial. Let this sink in. This trial, this, this, this courtroom, this Jewish courtroom, it wasn't all 71 members. No doubt there were a few that couldn't make it and others, some, they will come the next morning. And no doubt others were not invited on purpose because we don't need them to have like any negative to the flow of where they want the, the place to go. But these 71 members are supposed to be his jury They're supposed to be his judges listening to the charges against him. But you know you're in a bad situation if you're ever put on on trial and the judge starts becoming your prosecutor. Now you're in a bad way. So if you're ever in some foreign country and there's a guy that's the judge and then he starts bringing all the charges against you, you're going down. Just now it doesn't matter if you're innocent or not. And that's exactly what happened to Christ. Write this down. Jesus' supposed jury And judges also became his actual prosecutors. And the problem was that before the trial began, they had already reached a pre-trial verdict in their heart that he's guilty. What are we going to do with it? Oh, we're going to find him guilty. Guilty of what? We don't know yet. We're going to find it. We've already made up our mind. Yeah, we already made up our mind. He's guilty. And the sentence will be the death sentence. They already made up pre-trial. Before the trial begins, his supposed judges have become his prosecutors and already reached a verdict of guilty. And they hire false witnesses and they try to train them. The problem was the false witnesses couldn't agree on anything. I can't revisit it all. Just know that some tried to say, yeah, what do you have to say about this man? Well, he says he's going to destroy Solomon's temple and rebuild it in three days. But they couldn't get their story straight. And the whole time, Jesus is just standing there saying nothing. He's completely silent. The whole trial 
turned at one moment when Caiaphas the high priest, out of total frustration because Jesus would not say anything. I dare say, if you're ever put on trial and people are saying lies about you, you will want to refute those lies. Jesus didn't. But everything turned when in a moment of frustration, Caiaphas uses his position of high priest, puts Jesus under oath and says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? We want an answer. No more silence. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? If he had said, no, I'm not, he gets to go free. But that would have been a lie. And so the Lord agreed. And in the affirmative, yes, it is as you say. And in their mind, they now have their charge. He is guilty of blasphemy. He was not because he is Christ, the Son of God. But in their mind, you have now committed blasphemy and you have committed a crime worthy of death. But there's one big problem. And this is why there's a second aspect to his, to his trial. The Roman government, the Roman Empire was over Israel. And though they gave Israel some, some semblance of self-governing and self-rule, and though the Jewish council found him guilty of blasphemy, they don't have the power to put him to death. And so they need to go that Friday morning early. And I mean early. No doubt Pilate's woken up and, yep, the chief priests are out here. they got somebody needs need you to put on trial. Without revisiting it all, they know that they cannot bring a charge against Jesus about blasphemy because this Roman governor will not care at all. I don't care about what you think. This sounds like a Jewish squabble. This is a religious squabble. It has nothing to do with me. So they come up with three fake, phony, totally trumped up charges. Number one, this man's guilty of sedition. He's an insurrectionist. He stirs up riots and trouble. Pilate hears that. Number two, he tells, this man tells the Jewish people not to pay their taxes to Rome. Both of those are total lies. And Pilate, though cowardly, has some discernment. And he knows enough to know if either one of those things were true, I would have already heard about it. Everything I've ever heard about this man is good. And he knows these guys are lying. Their third charge, do you remember what it was? This man claims to be a king in opposition to Caesar. That one, Pilate has to take him inside. We've got to go talk about this. He questions the Lord Jesus. Jesus stood silent against the other charges, but on this one, is it true? Are you a king? Jesus informs him, yes, I'm a king, but I'm not any threat to you or to Caesar. My kingdom is not of this world. Yes, I'm a king, but I'm not a threat to the, the Roman Empire. Pilate recognizes a criminal when he sees one, and he knows this man is not that. And so he goes out and says, I find no guilt in him. And everything within Pilate wants to turn Christ loose, but they will, take, they will not take no for an answer. They refuse. They continue until they get what they want, which is the execution and the death of Jesus. Pilate ends up doing four things. Do you remember them? Do you remember what he did? Because he doesn't want to put Christ to death. He ends up, first of all, scattered throughout. This is kind of the, one of the main things. He repeatedly tells them, he takes Jesus back, he talks with him, interviews him, and he comes back and he says, I find no fault in this man. I find no guilt. This man is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, he did that at least five times, maybe six that are recorded, different in the Bible. Different. If you do the timeline from all the Gospels, at least five times, Pilate says, he's innocent. I see no fault in him. There is no guilt in this man. He doesn't want to put him to death. Secondly, he ends up hearing that Jesus is from Galilee. That's his out. He sends Jesus over to this other Roman official, King Herod. Herod's glad to hear of, of Christ. Problem is, G Jesus will not say even one word to Herod. Herod gets frustrated, sends Jesus back to Pilate. Now what's he going to do? 
Do you remember Pilate's third thing? His ace in the hole. Do you remember the ace in the hole? It's his big. It was brilliant, I think, normally. The Jews at the Passover had this custom, this expectation, that there would be given amnesty to some prisoner in the Jewish city of Jerusalem. Some Jewish person was going to be let free from prison. And so Pilate, knowing this, says, I'm going to give him a choice. He tells his people, go get the absolute worst guy that we have. And they bring out Barabbas, who is a robbing, thieving, murderer, a true insurrectionist. He brings out Barabbas, and he stands Jesus before them. And he says, one of these two guys is going free on your streets today. Who's it going to be? And then his wife interrupts him. And so while Pilate is dealing with his wife about her dream, the chief priests end up stirring up and, and really convoluting among the Jewish people. And they do the craziest thing that's ever been done. Given the choice between a murderer to go free on your streets or this man who's healed, literally, no doubt, tens of thousands of people, who's only ever done good, one of them is going free. Who's it going to be? And the crowd strangely starts saying, Barabbas. No, 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 no. No, who's going free? Barabbas. So then he says, what am I going to do with Jesus? And they start crying out, crucify him. Pilate doesn't want to do it. So he goes to his last, listen, Pilate did evil in hopes that his evil would be the lesser of two evils. Do you remember what he did? John chapter 19, flip over there, John 19. Keep following along this morning. John 19, we find number two, not only was Jesus put on trial, but number two, this is Pilate's final attempt. Number two, Jesus was scourged. Pilate's going to have Jesus flogged. And I believe everything within me that Pilate's thought here is, I'm going to have him beat up really bad. That'll surely satisfy them. And though it's wrong because he's innocent, I'm going to have him do this. And hopefully it stirs up enough pity and it'll save his life. I shouldn't do this, but it'll save his life. For that reason, I believe that he told his soldiers, make it count. I'm reading between. Scourge him, flog him. And make it good, otherwise they're not going to have pity. And I need it to be good. John chapter 19, look at verse number 5. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Doesn't mean he did it personally. It means hundreds, as we look at the other gospels, hundreds of Roman soldiers took Christ and flogged him. And the soldiers, they didn't just stop there. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. So they flog him first, put a robe on him, and then this crown, shove it down on him to add more blood to what's already happened because of the flogging. They came up to him. Now they're going to add all their mocking and shame and reproach to it. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Struck him with their hands over and over, blindfolded him. Who hit you that time? Hit him over the head with a reed as he's wearing a crown of thorn. Roman soldiers mocking the true king of the Jews. Verse 4, Pilate apparently allowing this to happen. Give them their bloodthirstiness. Let them have their pound of flesh, his Roman soldiers. But when that is over, Pilate went out again and said to them, to the Jews. He keeps going back and forth. So here he says, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Look at him. Jesus did not walk out with the same stature that he went back. He's almost dead. He comes out and he would have been just beat down a bloody mess. And I don't know if this robe is closed, but they would look and they would see what I'm about to read. This is nasty. Look at him. 
It's got to be enough. You would think, but it wasn't. So what is this flogging? D.A. Carson, by the way, there's two ways they would flog people. One, they would tie their hands and put them up over their head, strip them of their clothes, put their feet where they could barely touch the ground. And two scourgers would take their turn. No doubt one right-handed and one left-handed. And there was not a limit. And these guys could kill you if they want. They could get you within an inch of your life. They could do different levels of scourging. The other is, is to take the same, no clothes on, take the person and, and tie them around a post with their hands tied. Either way, there is absolutely no defense. You will not be able to defend what's about to happen. D.A. Carson says the whip was the dreaded flagellum. It's called the cat of nine tails. Most of you have heard this, but somebody hasn't. Picture a handle, and out of that handle are coming nine. It's called a cat, because cats scratch and claw and do damage. Out of that strap, that handle, comes nine pieces of leather, he writes. The whip was the dreaded flagellum made by plating pieces of bone or lead into leather thongs. Nine leather thongs, pieces of lead scattered throughout, bone, jagged, all in that. Nine of these things, and they're going to take their turn, right-hander, left-hander, he writes, write it down, severe flogging not only reduced the flesh to bloody pulp. That line just by itself. It reduced the flesh. I'm not camp here. We're not camping here. But you need to understand, what, this is what happened to Jesus. He's put on trial, and then he's flogged and scourged and crowned with thorns. Do you, do you get the picture? The skin is being removed, and the ribbons of muscle are no longer ribbons of muscle. It's just being pounded and muted into bloody pulp. But he, having studied this and researched this, he writes, severe flogging not only reduced the flesh to bloody pulp, but could open up the body until the bones were visible. So the spine and the ribs and the entrails exposed. It could get to the point literally where the entrails are exposed. Far worse than a surgery. I mean, again, look, oh, we better stop. That looks like a rib right there. No, let's go on this side. And they're experts at doing this. Almost killing him. And they bring him out. And there's Pilate hoping that's enough for this bloodthirsty crowd. But it was not enough. Say, so why did Pilate end up letting the, fifth, the third thing happen to Jesus? One, he was a coward, but two, you understand this, the Jewish leaders had leverage on him. They had already reported him to the Roman emperor, and if he gets reported again as doing a bad job, he's at least going to lose his job. And number two, he could be punished himself. He doesn't want either one of those things. So he ends up placating, and they do not accept the, the flogging as being sufficient. No, they insist. Number three, Jesus was crucified. You're still in John 19. Look at verse number 16. John 19, verse 16. John 19, 16. When they would take no for an, not take no for an answer, they demanded their way. Finally, verse 16 says, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. He's carrying his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
So picture that. Christ is carrying. Is it, is it the two pieces of the cross or is it just the cross beam? We don't know. And we know from other gospels that eventually falls beneath that weight. And a man named Simon has to end up killing, but, carrying it for him. But ultimately he makes it to the place which is called the place of a skull. Which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Every gospel strikes me by how short they describe what actually happens. Look at verse 18. First four words. Look at it. First four words. There's so much there. There they crucified him. And with him two robbers, one on either side, and Jesus between them. There's about three quotes. If you have heard me preach an Easter sermon for now seven times, you've probably heard three quotes that are in today's message, probably five or six of those times and maybe a seventh time. And I'm not going to park here, but I, I, I just, every time, for my own good and I think for our good, we need to just try to take a glimpse of what that is like. What is crucifixion? Oh, yeah, they, they spike that hand, they spike that hand, and they put a spike through the hands and the feet, and they take it up and they drop it in the hole, and you hang there till you die. Frederick Farrar is one that I always borrow from. Quote, Indeed, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of horrible and ghastly. He's going to give 12 descriptions. So we, th we think about, okay, that's, that's the bad part about crucifixion, but he's researched it more. There's at least 12 things that are going to take place. Here's his list. Dizziness. Cramp. So the body is going to cramp. The person is going to be dizzy. Thirst. He's going to come back to that one. Dizziness. Cramp. Thirst. Starvation, you don't get food on a cross. Sleeplessness, you don't get to go to sleep on a cross. No matter how long you're out there, you're not going to really sleep. But notice these others. Traumatic fever. Fever is just running. So you're freezing to death and you're burning up. Traumatic fever. Tetanus. So poison is going all through the bloodstream. And then he goes into the mind. Shame is associated. A person feels shame on a cross. The next one sounds like that, but it's a little different. Publicity of shame. So it's not just shame of being on a cross. Jerusalem's going to have hundreds of thousands of people and tens of thousands of people are going to go by the Lord Jesus. There is publicity of shame. And then the next one, long, long continuance of torment. Not just torment, but continuous torment. Long, this is what happens to a person on a cross. Long, continuance, unstopping torment. Horror of anticipation. Not just horror, uh-oh, they're going to drive a spike into that hand. That would end up being one of the least uh-oh, dreading that. And dre no, it's dreading every movement. It's knowing that how well you're breathing right now, which you're barely staying alive, that's the best it will be until your breath is completely gone. Mortification of untended wounds. You're dying from untended wounds. For our rights, all this is intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all. But all stopping just short of the point which would give the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. If I could just go unconscious. No, don't just get to go unconscious in crucifixion. And his last thoughts are these. I find them very revealing. No doubt a result of much research. He says, and while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. Don't discount that one. 
And then he says, and all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself. So what's going on in a person's mind that's being crucified? There's an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself, of death, the unknown enemy at whose approach man usually shudders most, makes it bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. Person on the cross, they literally, if you could ask them, they would definitely say, I don't know fully what happens after we die, but whatever it is is better than this. I just want to die right now. I would love it if you would just kill me. Please don't leave me to suffocate to death. Did Jesus die by crucifixion? It's not in your list. I'll give you five things. He was put on trial. He was scourged. He was crucified. After six hours on the cross, Jesus decided he would die. And he died. And then his soul went to Hades. Number four, write this. You say, what happened to the body? Number four, Jesus was buried. This is a whole study to itself. Please don't just make this a light thing. I'm not going to be able to give it time this morning. Jesus was buried. Follow me. Here's why this is important. What usually happened to a crucifixion victim was they would be left on a cross. And their body would just decompose up there. And the birds would come pick. And eventually the flesh. And it would rot. And there would be a stench. And the animals would come get what they could down low. Maybe they could pull the body down off. The other option, if you're not just left on the cross, you're going to be taking your body down and thrown into a mass grave with a lot of other dead people and just thrown on the top and whatever corruption they have and eventually your body and the flies and the maggots and it's going to be a nasty stench. That's not what happened to Jesus. God saw to it that Jesus' burial and the handling of his body did two things. It fulfilled prophecies and it set the stage for an undeniable miracle because four things happened. Here in your mind, quickly, number one. A rich man named Joseph gets permission from Pilate. I want the body. He takes the body. He wraps it in strips of linen cloth about a foot wide. And he goes all the way, all over his whole body. But he puts 75 to 100 pounds of very expensive spices. I mean, tens of thousands of dollars worth of spices. So instead of this nasty stench, the offering of God, the Lamb of God, ends up having this awesome smell to his body. Again, tens of thousands, more money than you've ever spent on perfume is put on the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he's buried, number two, in a rich man's grave that nobody had ever been buried in. And he's buried in there, and then that's covered over with a large stone. Probably like we saw in a picture, a graphic earlier, a large disc. And this stone, this, this disc would be put in a trough with a downward slope so that it would cover the opening of the grave. So that if you wanted to move the stone, you had to push it uphill because its default is to be down in the slot covering. But then this is key. Jesus' enemies remembered something that he had said. His disciples do not remember this, but his enemies remembered that he had said he's going to come back to life three days later. And so they go to Pilate and they say, hey, listen, this man, this imposter said he's going to come back to life three days later. Could you imagine how bad it would be if his body were to be missing on the third day? Like he says, we'll never hear the end of it. We need some Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. Pilate says, you have your guard. So Roman soldiers go and guard the front entrance of Christ's tomb. You got the picture? He's wrapped. He's buried. A stone is put in place. Roman soldiers are on duty to guard to make sure none of Jesus' followers can dare try 
to steal the body. But then the Jews do one last thing. This would be the Jews. They're going to come and they're, they're going to put a rope across the front of that stone. And they're going to set each side of that rope into wax with some signet, some kind of emblem set in the wax that if it's disturbed, they would know. You, you picture the scene. Here these Roman soldiers finally, hey, what are y'all doing? It isn't that we don't trust you guys to being on a conspiracy. It's just that we don't trust you guys. Okay? And so we're going to put a seal here. So if you tamper with this, if anybody moves this stone, we're going to know it. And you're going to get in big trouble with Pilate because he gave us permission to seal this stone. He's put on trial. He's scourged. He's crucified. He dies. And he was buried. And the last thing I want you to notice about what Jesus had happened to him. Listen. I wrote a sentence. I want you to feel it. What's about, what you're about to write is the one thing no one on earth expected. You say, what? The next thing that happened to Jesus is the one thing no one on earth expected to happen. My only thought, and I'm going to give a little caveat, there might be one woman that might have expected it. What was her name? Mary. Maybe. I don't know. It's hard to go by John's wording in John's gospel. Did Mary know what she was doing when she was anointing? Because if what we're about to read, is this the same Mary that's going to the tomb? If so, why is she taking spices to go put on the dead body? Or is this a different Mary? I don't know the answer to that. All I know is none of Jesus' disciples expected this, and none of Jesus' enemies expected this, and you already know the answer. It's why we're here this morning. Say, so what happened to Jesus? Number five, he was resurrected. Matthew chapter 28, after you write that word, Jesus was resurrected. Notice Matthew 28. Turn there in your Bible, if you would, Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Are these songs that we've sung and these, this hope that we share, is it based on anything? Oh, absolutely. Matthew 28, verse number 1. Let's read the first six verses. Now, after the Sabbath, yesterday would have stood for the Sabbath. So we had Good Friday, the day on which the Lord died. Sabbath day, it's being, his tomb's being guarded by the soldiers. There's a stone in front of it. But early on Sunday morning, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn, earlier than this, so toward the dawn of the first day of the week, today's Sunday, the first day of the week, what happened? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. We know from the other Gospels, they're bringing more spices to apply to, apply to the body. There's more than these women. There's... There's three, four, five women, at least three, possibly four or five women. And we know from other places that they're wondering, uh-oh, what about the stone? It's too big. We know it's a large stone because they don't feel like they can move it. Yet they continue going. It's, it's, it's like mostly dark, almost some daylight before sunrise, verse 2. Four things end up happening that they don't expect. Verse 2, behold, there was a great earthquake, second one, in about 48 to 60 hours because there was a great earthquake at on Friday at 3 p.m. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord. Second thing, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. So this angel comes down. He rolls back the stone. Jesus doesn't roll back the stone. Jesus is already gone. We're going to know that. Verse 2, there was an earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. 
And here these women, you've got to know that as they're coming, they're going to see these Roman soldiers. Did they know they were there? Or is this a surprise? What are they doing here? And why is that stone open? And what's that bright light up there? And this earthquake shook and scared them. Verse 3, this angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. When people see angels, we get afraid. Verse 4 says, and for fear of him, this angel, the garden. By the way, we know there are actually two angels. Matthew points out one. And for fear of him, the guards, these Roman guards, trembled and became like dead men. They are so afraid of this angel. But the angel said to the women, notice he doesn't say this to the soldiers. He tells the women, do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He doesn't say to them, hey soldiers, fellas, calm down, just chill. No, you're good to be afraid. You ought to be afraid. I can rip your head off anytime I want. Ladies, don't be afraid. I know why you're here. They're over here trying to keep Jesus' disciples from stealing a body. They can be dealt with. You all don't need to. I'm making a distinction. You don't need to be afraid of me. Verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. This is like the worst news they could have heard. Stones rolled away. And now you're telling us he's not here. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said. He said this. At least six times in the book of Matthew. At least six different times. For he has risen as he said, come, see the place where he lay. Jesus had told them, the third day is your cue. They totally forgot about it. The third day is your sign. When you see me rise again on the third day, you will know who I am. The second quote I can never get away from is the next one I'm about to use. Wilbur Smith writes this, and you've heard it before if you've been here. Smith writes, listen. When Jesus said he would rise again from the dead, six times. When Jesus said he would rise again from the dead, the third day after he was crucified. you catch those three things? He would rise again from the dead the third day after being crucified. Crucified, rise again, third day. When he said he would rise again from the, third, from the dead the third day after he was crucified, he said something that only a fool would dare say if he expected longer the devotion of any disciples. Only a fool would say such a thing unless he was sure he was going to rise. The last quote I can never get away from, I always want to review it in my mind, is an author named Laney. I don't know if he's a heretic or not, but I like these words, right? This is a good quote. Laney writes, quote, so here's the picture. Jesus is resurrected. He's already, he's in a glorified body. He's already exited the tomb. Then on that Sunday morning, an angel comes back, removes the stone. The women are invited to go in. I don't know that they ever really went in. They go back. They're going to tell Peter and John. Peter and John are going to run up. John's going to outrun Peter. And John's going to look in from the outside. And then Peter is finally going to get there and move John out of the way. And and Peter's going to go inside. And Peter, the the word there is, the idea he's going to stare at the clothes. He's going to stare and there's just clothes. No doubt in the shape of Jesus' body. And he's sitting there trying to figure out what that all means. Laney writes the following. Jesus was crucified and buried. You there? We're rewinding. He was crucified and buried. His followers were utterly dejected. All Friday night, all Saturday, Sunday morning, there goes some women to give more spices to add what Joseph's already done. 
Jesus was crucified and buried. His followers were utterly dejected. They thought he was the Messiah. Apparently he's not. They crucified him. They're totally confused, utterly dejected. But Laney continues. A very short time afterwards, they were extremely elated and showed such reassurance as carried them by a sustained life of devotion through to a martyr's death. So here they are, utterly dejected, shortly after, a little over two days, less than three days later, they're elated and they're propelled into lives of devotion for Jesus, telling everyone about Jesus and about his resurrection until they're all put to death for that, painful ways, martyred for their faith. Why would anybody do Utterly dejected, elated, devoted, martyred. What changed between dejected and elated? What made them? I'm going to ask you in your mind right now, go. What specifically moved them from being dejected to elated? You'd say, well, when Jesus rose again, that didn't do it. Jesus rose again, and they were not elated. You say, it was that empty tomb. Nope, the empty tomb made them confused. What was it? Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse number 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. By many proofs, the King James says, many infallible proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the king. And that appearing to them means like a dozen times, like 12 or more times, he keeps on appearing to them over and over and over. Write this thought down. Yes, they died martyrs' death. They went from dejected to elated to devoted to martyred. The reason? People don't die for a lie. People die for what they know is true. And these men who died... They are one, listen, not 99. They are 100% convinced that Jesus was resurrected from the dead, not because of the empty tomb, but because of his repeated appearances in the exact same body that was crucified. Write that down. The word many proofs in Acts 1-3 means the strongest kinds of evidence, the kind you would take into a courtroom if you were trying to prove your point. How do you know that Jesus, because I saw him. Multiple times. He walked with us. He left footprints where he walked. He talked audibly. We all heard the same thing. He ate bread and fish. He drank with us. He showed us his wounds. Thomas, one of us wasn't there. And Thomas, being a skeptic, says, I'm not going to believe he's alive. I don't care if all, all ten of you say he is. I'm not going to believe it unless I can put my finger in the nail prints of his hand. I'm going to put my hand into his side. And then Jesus shows up and says, all right, Thomas, come on over here. And he falls down on his face and says, my Lord and my God. Last point this morning. What are we to do with this? The Lord sent me this morning to tell you some lessons that we are to take away from this scene. Number one, notice lessons from Jesus' death and resurrection. I 
I've been impressed by the Lord to come tell you all this morning that based on what we've sang, which is based on the Scriptures, the following six truths. Number one, God will judge all sin. That matters. Listen. I started the message by saying there are some in the room that are still in darkness. God has not yet opened their eyes. Your salvation... And some of you right now, you know who you are. And I don't, I'm not angry with you. I'm, I'm, I'm sorrowful for you. I feel for you. I want the Lord to use this message to awaken you. And only God can do it. But you should be saying, Lord, help me to feel. Help me to understand. Help me to see this truth and to respond to it appropriately. Your salvation matters because God will judge all sin. You say, what's the point? Where does this come out of the text? What does that have to do with your message? Listen. If God did what he did to his one and only son by nature whom he loves throughout eternity, what do you think he would do to a person who hears about Jesus dying for their sins and just rejects it? What do you think he will do? You will pay for your own sin. You will drink a bitter cup of God's wrath that will be hell for eternity. God will pay for all sin. God will punish it all. Number two, the Lord wants me to let you know That all this scene means Jesus, the man, is the Lord. He's the Lord over life. He's the Lord over death. He's the Lord over all things. He's in control of all things that happen in heaven and on earth. And the result is we must worship him. So Christians, this morning, the Lord sent me to tell you the truth. What you should do with what we've learned this morning is cause it To help you understand that a man, one of us, is running the universe and heaven. One of us is worthy of our worship. Worship him because Christ has died and resurrected. Number three, this is important. God wants me to let you understand that God is trustworthy. To keep his promises. He made 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. And God kept all of those. But in my mind, I thought as I was reading this, Psalm 16 in Acts chapter 2 where Peter talks about Psalm 16 and what was in the mind of the Lord. Here's what I know. God made a promise to his son that he would not leave his soul in Hades. He would not leave his body in corruption in the grave. And that is exactly what happened. God kept his promise to his son in Psalm 16. And I take this away. Everything, every promise, Christians, listen. I'm not saying when you take the Bible and twist it and make it say what you want it to say. I'm saying when you rightly interpret the Word of God and you find a a passage, a verse, a section of Scripture that has promises for you, you sink your teeth into it. It will happen. God is trustworthy. Number four, not only is your salvation urgent because God is going to punish all sin, but I want you to know this. Your salvation is available. Why? Write it down. God wants you to know this morning that the resurrection of Jesus proves. This is something I say every Easter and I'm going to always say it. Just get used to it. So if you come next year and you're like, wonder at what point he's going to say this. Oh, it's going to happen. Because this, this is what matters. The resurrection of Jesus proves that God accepted Jesus' death as the sufficient payment for our sins. That's the sign. How do we know that what Jesus did on the cross was enough? 
When God raised him from the dead, that was your evidence and proof and inclination. That was the sign. That was God's way of saying, I accept his death on that cross for your sins. Ladies and gentlemen, can I say it this way? God accepts his death and nothing else. God doesn't accept anything else. This is important. If there was another way for God to save from sin, then God would have done the other way. But God sent His Son to die this horrible death where we talked about flogging and crucifixion and just the weight bearing. We don't even understand the worst part of the cross is the sin bearing and the substitutionary part of it. Why would God do that if there's another way? Here's my point. If you have in the past thought you were saved... Or if you ever plan to be saved by going to God, but in your mind, as you come to God for salvation, and if you thought you got saved in the past, and when you came to God for salvation, if you had any thought whatsoever in your mind of your good works being added to what Jesus did on the cross, then you screwed up the whole thing. You spoiled the grace aspect of salvation. Because of what Christ has done, God says, I will give you eternal life. I will give you forgiveness. I will give you salvation for free. But if you come with any part of your mind, I mean even like, Lord, I know what Jesus did saves me, but I'm going to do my part, my little 1%, then you have ruined it. You have spoiled the grace aspect of salvation, and you have utterly insulted the death of Christ as if it is insufficient to pay for your sin. Make sure, check your heart right now. You who say you are saved, was there anything or is there anything in you that thinks, I'm trusting Jesus and I'm adding a little bit to it. I got baptized and I'm a member at Graceview and I'm faithful and I read my Bible and I pray and I give money. And I stop saying those words. That's awesome. That's wonderful. I hope you're not relying on that in any way in your formula and your equation with God. Number five. God sent me here this morning to tell believers. Tell them that Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Guarantees it. Romans 8. Would you flip over there? Romans 8. I think it's the last one I'll have you turn to. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8, check yourself by this text. Verse 11, check yourself, everybody here. The Bible says God's word makes a promise, and we can sink our teeth into this. God is faithful to keep his promises. If the Spirit, capital S, if the Holy Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, we know God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, say what? Do you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you? Most people in the world do not. All believers do. Do you? Listen, if you're sitting here this morning and you just heard that question, say, oh yeah, I have the Holy Spirit dwelling in me. What evidence do you have of the Holy Spirit? God will not move into this body. I mean literally the Spirit of God in this little space and I stay the same. You don't have something as big and powerful and life-changing as God come into your life and you just stay the same. So if you're sitting there this morning and you say, oh, I have the Spirit. I like Romans 8 verse 11. What evidence do you have that the Spirit is in your, in your body? If you do have that assurance, then take great 
comfort in verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Your body is a mortal body. It's not an immortal body. It's a mortal body. And He will give life to you from the dead to your mortal body through His Spirit who dwells in you. Why does this matter? I don't know why this thought has been not haunting me, but keeps recurring probably for about the last three weeks. Death is coming. Death is coming. Death's coming. Not to stir up a hornet's nest, but right here in our group, our regulars of Graceview, I know our official stance is a pre-tribulation rapture. I hope that's the right one. I hope the Lord raptures us before the tribulation. But there are some in this congregation who have pretty good evidence that the rapture is not going to take place until the middle of the tribulation. That means three and a half years of tribulation. And there's others in here have some really good strong evidence that could indicate The rapture takes place at the end of the tribulation, going through the seven years. And most of us, if that's the case, will be put to death for our faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? There's a lot of people in the room who are just living life like, oh, I'm just going to live and I'm going to get raptured out. I'll never have to die. Do you know how many millions, billions of Christians have died believing that? And I'm not taking away. I believe in the doctrine of the second coming. Second coming doctrine is true. When that, tri- when that rapture takes place, I don't know for sure. What I'm saying is you better plan on dying. Plan on dying or quite possibly going through something you may wish you were dead before you had gone into it. Plan on dying. Are you ready? Two events recently. One was Friday. A lot of people paid a lot of money to go to a golf tournament. Where are you going to be better than at Augusta National Golf Course? A large pine tree just randomly just falls. Wham! Go look at the video. Barely misses people. I haven't followed up. I'm assuming no one was injured. I mean, you just see people running out of the way. Biltmore Estate. In the last year, one was just in the last two weeks. A tree fell, landed right on an employee's car. He's in it. They're getting sued by that employee's family. Random tree. Where are you going to go in North, South Carolina, and Georgia where you're going to feel more safe and more like, man, this is awesome than at Biltmore Estate and at Augusta National Golf Course? Random trees are falling. Death is always lingering. But the resurrection of Jesus guarantees my resurrection. My mortal body is going to die. I'm planning on it. Write this down. Death will not be the last word. No, it's not in your notes. I'm sorry. Listen to Sproul. Y'all remember R.C. Sproul? He's with the Lord now. Sproul has now experienced what he wrote. He says, In his death, Jesus removed the sting from the grave. So that death now is not a punishment for sin, but a transition to a better dimension. I like that quote. Jesus removed the sting from death so that death now is not a punishment for sin, but a transition to a better dimension. Christians, if we ever get a hold of Philippians 1.23, you will not be afraid of death. When I'm about to die, 
and I've got a ventilator tube running down my throat, and I'm in that who knows what's going to happen phase, remind me of Philippians 1. Jeff, if he takes you, it's far better. <laughs> Lastly, what does this all mean? Here's what it means. It means, God wanted me to tell you, everything Jesus ever said is true. Everything he ever said is true. Isn't, isn't this the case? Hey, if a man tells lame people to get up and walk, and every lame person he says to get up and walk, they all do, and every blind person he ever said, and he does it a lot, he tells blind people to see, and they all do, and he tells deaf people to hear, and they all do, and he tells some dead people to rise up and live again, and they all do, if that same man for months in advance says he's going to Jerusalem and he does, when he get there, I'm going to be crucified, and he is. And then he says, I'm going to come back to life, and it's going to be on the third day. If that man who always told them, and they always did what he said, if that man says these four things, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'll be crucified, I'm coming back to life, and oh, by the way, it's going to be on the third day. If all that happens, I'm believing everything that man says, whatever he says. So what did he say? Look at the screen. Look at the screen. John 14. Look at the screen. Can we have John? Jesus said to him, here's Jesus, this is true. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, you better believe it, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says there is no way to go to heaven except through him. He's the way. John 5.24, look at the screen. John 5.24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say, I'm telling you the truth, look at it. Whoever hears my words and believes, there's two parts. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. you got to hear it and believe it. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. you got to hear my words and believe it. Whatever he says is true. John chapter 3, they sang it earlier. Look at verse, 15, uh, verse 16. It's important because of one word. We're adding one word here. For God so loved the world. Jesus says that he gave his only son. Why that? Whoever. So if you're here this morning and you're saying, it's not me, preacher. God loves them and God will save them, but you don't know what I've done. Well, Jesus says, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I'm going with what he says, not what you feel. I'm going with that. Acts 16, 31, last verse. Sirs, apostles of Jesus, what do we have to do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Ladies and gentlemen, it all boils down to this. The way to go to heaven is to believe Jesus and what he says. But what does that mean? Your last note is this. To have faith and to believe means to hear the promises of God. That's the first thing. You've got to hear the promises of God, which you've heard today. You've got to hear the promises of God, and then you've got to act like he's telling the truth. Act like he's telling the truth. So I'm going to ask you all this morning, after you've written that note, I'm going to ask you, don't nod heads, don't say out loud. I'm asking you within your own heart, yes or no to these questions. Everybody here, those of you watching online, this is what it's all about. Yes or no? So, faith in Christ is when I hear what God says, what Jesus says, 
And I believe it, and I act like he's telling the truth. So here's your questions. Within your own heart, be it no reason to lie. If you lie, you're only fooling yourself. Your soul is at stake. God says you are a sinner. God says you're a sinner. Do you believe him? God says because of your sin, you need a Savior. You tracking with me? You need a Savior. Do you agree with him? Do you believe? He says you're a sinner. He says you need a Savior. God says Jesus is his Son. God's Son. God's unique Son. Do you believe him? God said, can you go face to face with God and say, do it. God, I do believe I'm a sinner, and I know I need to be saved. And I do believe, I do, I've heard it today, all this evidence. This is the point. I do believe that Jesus is your son. And then God says, Jesus is your Savior. He's the only one. Do you believe him? Can you talk with God like, God, I do believe that he is my Savior. Then, do you believe God says Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to pay for all your sins and you don't have to add anything to that? Can you go face to face with God and say, I don't know why you did it, but I do believe it. I believe his death was enough to pay for all my sin. Do you believe? If in your heart you could answer yes to all of that, you're almost saved. I said, almost. I said, I believe all that. The last thing to believe in Jesus is not just to understand all of that and to agree with all of that. But if you just went like four for four, five for five on that, there's one last thing. You must depend. Like the ultimate saving faith the Bible calls for is not to just hear it, agree with it, know it, yes. It's ultimately to take that step of I'm going to receive it. I'm going to rest in it. I'm going to trust it. Do you hear the difference between, oh, I believe it in my head? That's different than trusting. Right here, we've got a couple of chairs. This chair right here, this may represent some of you here today. You have been totally unconcerned about your salvation. Not even, you're just living life like you're never going to die. This here represents you trusting and resting in Christ. Not just, oh, I know it. It's you, I'm going to rest. I'm going to trust. See, the ultimate faith that saves a person is in that moment where they, in a, in a moment of time, they choose to receive that salvation. They don't just see God handing, I'm giving you, I'm offering you salvation. Oh, I know you are, and I agree with all the tenets of it. I'm intellectually tracking with you, God. No, it's that moment where without moving a muscle, without doing any work, you take it, and you just rest in Christ because he's enough, and your legs aren't tight, and you're not stressed out. And in that moment, for me it was 1979, in that moment you just rest so much, you know he has done it. You know he has done it. The only way for that to happen is for you. And by the way, this chair for some of you may mean this. You say, Jeff, oh, I've, I'm very concerned about my salvation. That's why I got baptized and joined the church here. And that's why I read my Bible every day. You're in this chair. If that describes you, if that's what you're trusting, you better get up out of that chair. And you better move over to this one. 
and start resting in Christ and let him. I want everybody leaving today having received the free gift of salvation. The way you do it by faith is in a moment of time, like right now. You just, not by hand. You just go face to face with God. I hear what you've said today, Lord, and I see all the evidence and I believe it. I'll take it right now. I'll take it. i receive it right now. And I'm not going to wonder if you did it. You have to do it. Everything Jesus said, you, you have to do it. So I'm taking it right now. Heads bowed, eyes closed, just for a moment. If you need to receive that salvation, if you need to receive that salvation, I want to invite you. In a moment, not yet, I'm going to invite our choir back up, and they're going to close with a song. But if anyone right now is here or watching online, and you're just not sure or you know you're unsaved, could I invite you? Would you just write where you're at, acknowledge to God, Say, God, I, just tell, talk to God. He'll hear you. And just believe. It's not about a perfectly worded prayer. Just right now, talk to God. God, you're right about me being a sinner. You're right. Tell him that. Agree with him. Agree with God. God, I agree with what you said that Jesus is your son. I agree with you. I believe. Tell him, I believe. I believe that Jesus is my Savior. Agree with God. God, I, I've heard your word today. I agree. Jesus is the Savior, and his death was for me, and it's enough. If you really believe that, tell God, I believe Jesus' death is enough for me. Just you. Don't even move your vocal cords. Just you talking to God. He will hear you. God, I believe Jesus' death was enough for me. And now right now, seal it. Picture God. Extending out through Christ the free offer of salvation by grace as a gift. And don't you dare think of anything you're going to do. You're not adding anything. All you're doing is, God, at this moment in time, I receive your offer. Your son said, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I take it right now. And take it. And enjoy it. Enjoy the gift of salvation. Choir, would you come? Choir's making their way. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Everyone else, heads bowed, eyes closed. Christians, if you're a Christian, I want you to listen to this song. I don't know if we end up singing or not, but I've requested this song be a good song for us to finish on this morning. So Christians, as the choir's making their way, why don't you just in your heart tell God thank you. Thank Jesus for taking all your sin for taking your place. Thank God for keeping all of His promises. Thank God for the truth of what they're about to sing. That Jesus' death guarantees our resurrection. His resurrection guarantees our physical bodies will ultimately be resurrected. Father, we thank You for the truth we've sung this morning. Lord, I pray. Lord, we prayed Friday, a lot of us. Some of the people we prayed for are here this morning. We ask you by name to save them. Did you do that today, Lord? Did you save some this morning? Did you give them the gift of faith? Are they now living in the light? If so, Lord, give them great boldness. Give them great boldness. Let them enjoy that. Let them have great assurance to rest 
in the sufficiency of Christ. It's in His name. Lord, I pray that you would help them to declare it and not be ashamed, to let someone know, I put my faith and trust in Christ today. Thank you for the truth of what we're about to hear. In Christ's name.